happy week to all of my friends and listeners and podcasters. We have had the chance to talk about our feelings a bit so far on this podcast, but today we are going to go way back to our beginnings when we were wee little ones and talk about those feelings. I love to think about all things about our brains, brain development, and what happens to our brain from our environment. The people around us, the family that raised us, and how events that can happen throughout our lives shape us. There is so much that we can unpack about this, way more than we can cover in one podcast. So I'm going to focus on the feelings of babies and children when we were young and specifically how the adults around them can help or hurt when it comes to that process of building their skills to grow into capable adults who know what to do with their feelings and can function, not even just the basic everyday way, but even be able to function at their highest, best level so that they can live their best lives. I think that will be plenty to cover in this one podcast. So let's dive in. Babies, they seem, they might seem complicated to those who are not around them a lot, but they really aren't. They're pretty simple creatures. They eat, sleep, poop, and spend some time alert. Between the time that they are born and before they're five years old, their brain is developing at the fastest rate of their lives, even more so before they're three years old. Their brains are taking in everything around them. They aren't focused on just one thing like we are as adults. Everything is new to them. So they take in all of this new information through all of their senses. If you haven't heard of the lantern analogy that talks about the way that babies learn, it is that adults focus on something kind of like a flashlight, shining its light on just one thing. And adults might not see things outside of the focus of that light, but babies have a focus more like a lantern. Think of a lighthouse where the light shines all around on everything. For adults, This is why when you drive to work on the same old route that you take every day, you might only focus on the things that are different or out of the ordinary on the road or on the sides of the streets, but your focus might be more on your music or a podcast or on your own thoughts. And then as you get to work and you don't really remember getting there, but if it were a baby in the driver's seat, they would be taking in Every little sight, little sound on the road, on the sides of the roads, in the sky, inside the vehicle, everything. They wouldn't just focus on the most important data that's coming in. So a bird in the sky might just be deemed just as important or more so than the vehicles driving around you, which is exactly why it would never be a good idea to let babies drive. The other thing about babies and the way that they think is that they announce all of their desires very easily with their cues in their own language. It's our job to decipher their cues when they are announcing to us that they want to eat or sleep, poop or play. Some babies use very obvious cues such as crying. 
Others may have more subtle cues and it's our job to notice them and interpret that baby's own language to figure out what it is that they are saying when they make their eyes big or touch their ears or their eyes or when they make a certain face or stretch out their hands, whatever it is that they are doing to attempt to communicate their wishes to us. If we don't read or hear those more subtle cues, then they move on to other cues that may be louder, more exaggerated until we get the message and give them whatever it is that they want. Ultimately, if no adult is paying attention or tending to their needs, that's when we get those boldest cues, which is that red face, all out screaming cry when their body is shaking or their fists are shaking. If we haven't caught the less obvious cues, then the baby figures that they will go with the all out, no holds barred, blatant cry for help. Of course, if that doesn't work, then a baby may also internalize that and realize that they just cannot trust the humans around them. And then they may turn to other self-soothing tactics. They may decide to be less communicative with the adults around them since they're learning that no one is there to meet their needs. So let's talk about their feelings. Again, they're pretty simple. When they have a wish or a desire or a need, they communicate it. They don't have all of that self-talk going on in their head like we do about whether or not they should ask for help, at least in the beginning and not starting until a situation like the one I just described where they aren't finding that help doesn't come. But in the beginning, they don't second guess whether or not someone else wants to help them. They don't question whether or not they are being too needy. They don't feel bad for the adult who has to get up again in the middle of the night. They don't worry about what their parent or anyone else thinks about them. They don't ask themselves if their other siblings were more or less needy than they are. They don't have all that adult baggage that we learn along the way. They don't have all those shoulds going on in their brain like we very often do. They don't have that self-judgment happening at all. So whatever they feel, they just act on. If they feel hungry or sleepy, or bored, cranky, angry, tired, scared, uncomfortable, whatever it is, they just let us know. They ask for help without feeling guilty, or needy, or too much. They accept their feelings, they just act on them. But somewhere along the way, based on our responses to the infant, they change that ease and simplicity around asking. Let's fast forward to when that child is three years old. Children who have been met with a calm, neutral, helpful, and loving response to their needs may have continued the simplicity of, of having a feeling and acting on it, asking for help. Although by, na- by now, by the time they're three, they may be asking by verbalizing. That cry when they were hungry might now be more like, mommy, may I have a snack, please? 
For some children, it may even look like an independent action where the child goes to his snack drawer and helps himself to the snack out of the snacks that are allowed for him. For others, it may still be a cry or a whine or hitting their parent or whatever response has been shown to that child to actually work for them to be able to get whatever it is that they want. If their asking for help has been met with a more extreme response or an emotional response, such as a parent getting angry at them or ignoring them or becoming physical with them or getting criticized for a par- by a parent for being too needy or too hungry or too demanding, those children may act on their feeling of hunger by not asking for help, but by displaying unwanted behavior to get attention, such as hitting, kicking, having a temper tantrum, by remaining quiet and keeping their feeling to themselves and maybe not showing an action towards the parent if they feel like that might keep them safer. When we have a response that tells a child, when you express your needs and wants, it is not safe for you to do so. It's not safe because you are getting an angry response from me or no response or a response that scares you. Then children quickly learn that feelings are to be stifled, shoved down, not expressed outwardly, or sometimes even acknowledged to themselves. A child may learn to even not acknowledge their own hunger or their own needs or their own desires at all. They learn that their wishes are not important and not to be granted. So fast forward that three-year-old to a teenager. What is that teenager like if they have learned to ask for what they want in life? If they have learned the appropriate or the most effective way to ask? What is that teenager like if they have learned that their wishes and desires and needs are not important? If they have learned to not express their feelings but to shove them down? This is the age where those feelings may not come out in a temper tantrum like when they were little, but maybe in drug and substance abuse, in skipping school and breaking the law to get attention. Children who cannot get an adult's attention in an appropriate way will get an adult's attention in an inappropriate way. And fast forward some more to an adult, and what does it look like for them then? What kind of a partner or a husband or a wife is someone who has not learned how to handle their feelings? One of the biggest secrets to overeating, overdrinking, overworking, over anything, social media, escaping through TV, drugs, porn, any of those buffering activities that give you results in your life that you don't want. The biggest secret about those things is that they are an action that people take so that they can avoid their feelings. Now, when you hear this idea for the very first time, I admit it, it sounds really weird. Until you really can think about this and understand it, though, then it makes sense. And it can open up a whole new world when you become aware of this. So let's take Joe. Joe was raised by his parents who yelled at him when he cried as a baby. 
You're driving me crazy. You just ate. Stop giving me such a hard time. All you want is to make me mad all day long. As he got older, if he showed emotion, he was yelled at. If he started to cry, he was told that big boys don't cry. Men don't cry. Stop showing emotion. That makes you look weak. As an adult, when he feels sad, what does he do? Well, first of all, he's not going to be showing that sadness. He's not going to express it outwardly for fear that he will appear weak. What Joe does with that feeling is to express anger in the way that he experienced it. He yells at his kids. He yells at his partner and he drinks. Drinking is a way to try to run from that feeling of sadness, to ignore it, to try and outrun it. So the secret that I was talking about is that people who don't choose to buffer a lot are people who aren't afraid of their feelings. They are people who understand that a feeling is just a sensation somewhere in their body and that it's not going to hurt them and that it's only there to feel and not to fix or to make go away. Now, there are a few things that I want to say about this. First of all, I want to explain exactly what I mean by buffer. When you hear buffering, I don't want you to think of that little wheel that spins on your computer waiting to load something and says buffering. I want you to think of a buffer in between two things to muffle the sound or to insulate it. Kind of like you put insulation into the walls to keep the cold out or to buffer against sound and to keep your room quiet, that kind of a buffer. So when I say that people do things to buffer, I want you to think of it as putting something in between a person and their feelings, something to drown them out or to make them seem more distant or muffled or quiet. Now, what a person can use to buffer their feelings can be food, alcohol, gambling, drugs, sleep, oversleeping, TV, whatever you can do to ignore the feelings and pretend that they aren't there or to wait to feel them later, which often you push them down and later becomes never. And we do this so much more than you would think. This is something that humans tend to do all of the time until we learn to do it differently. So if we can instead raise children and teach children to know what the heck they are supposed to do with their feelings, then there is a possibility of bringing up the next generation in a way that they don't have to try and escape their feelings. Picture well-adjusted adults who then know how to do the same with the next generation. So the question is, how do we do it? If we understand that feelings are just feelings and that we should face our feelings and not be afraid of them and that we want to teach our children this, how do we do it? What does that even look like? This is the simple answer. When a child shows their emotions, let's acknowledge them, let's name them, Let's show children that it's okay to feel them. That's it. It sounds simple. It sounds easy. But I want to show you how tricky this can be. Because we all mess this up and society teaches us to kind of do the opposite of this. So picture a baby crying. What most all of us do is to instinctively tell that baby that they are okay, that it's fine. 
and we take action to change that baby's feelings. We all tend to believe that a baby crying is not okay, that it's wrong, that it should be happy. So we go about trying to make that baby happy all the while saying, you're okay, it's fine, don't cry. We all tend to think that happy babies and happy children are just a really big accomplishment or a pat on the back and we praise the parents. Oh, they're happy all the time. Good job. But nobody is happy all of the time. It's just not a full picture of this little human being that has a full range of emotions besides happy. This is what we can do instead. That baby is communicating something to us and it is our job to figure out exactly what the baby is communicating and for us to provide whatever it is that that baby needs. But instead of saying, you're okay, you're fine, it's as simple as saying, you are sad. You have tears coming out of your eyes. You want your bottle. I will feed you. As they get a little bit older, that language is going to change, of course. And if they are disappointed about not being able to get something that they really want. Instead of saying, stop crying, there's no reason to cry. We can say, you are disappointed. You really wanted that and you don't have that. Your face is telling me that you are really sad. It sounds really simple, but the message that we are giving a child is that I see you. I see your feeling and I'm not afraid of it. You don't have to be afraid of it. It's called disappointment, and here we are. It's not going to make me change my mind and give you that thing that you can't have right now because I'm not afraid of your feeling, and I'm not, so I'm not going to give in. But I see you feeling sad, and that's okay. I can just be here with you while you are sad. And then that feeling will pass, and other feelings will come. This particular feeling might come back again, and now you know what it is like and what it is called, and maybe even what you can do when you feel disappointed. These are all the things that are in our message to the child without actually saying all of those things. All we have to say is, I see you and you are sad. Take this child who learns this and fast forward to the kind of teenager, the kind of adult that he will be, one that can identify his feelings, one who doesn't need to buffer and overeat, overdrink, over anything to escape those feelings, one who can just understand their feelings and feel them and then move on, one who can even identify where that feeling is in their body and feel exactly where it is, what it feels like, and can experience that sensation. The trick with feeling the sensation in your body is that once you really feel it, not just identify it in your brain and name it, but feel the sensation in your body, then it generally moves along. It dissipates or it slowly fades away with time. It will give that time and space between a feeling and what actions come from that feeling so that you can take more mindful actions and which will give you results in your life that you want versus the results that you get from the buffering and from avoiding your feelings. I hope that this makes sense. I know that it sounds like a very simple idea. 
a very simple thing to say when you encounter a child who is sad, angry, disappointed, frustrated, to just point out their feeling to them. But it is truly one that can have a significant effect by making that child immediately feel understood and also demonstrate to that child that their feelings are not scary and they do not fluster adults, that there's nothing wrong with them for feeling a certain way. So give it a try. And if you do, let me know how it turns out. I would love to hear. Have a great week.